0: You can lock like my body, can't trap my mind, not will ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, F-P-B-P, stand for free the Black Panthers, and up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership rose, but we still here, in the bill here, up tail Pro, show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in rules, Usaba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You telling lies. Think this shit gon' be televised? Black power, be scared guys That be standing there like they paralyzed huh? We safe for the system Cause we above the system We keep ARs and pistols Shotguns, that's worth to crystal But that's for self-defense Make sure we have no issues Be sure to leave it at the door If you have it with you This for them freedom fighters That lost their freedom Until they freedom We screaming, Carpe d Khalid Muhammad We gon' make your day a holiday I fuck me, i Free the Black Panthers F.E.B.P Stand for Free the Black Panthers It's up the Black Police That 13th Amendment Tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind Not forever be free, okay Free the Black Panthers F.E.B.P Stand for Free the Black Panthers It's up the Black Police demonstrated our movement, for black leadership roles. But we still heads in the bill here, upcoin tail pro RBG, 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 RBG My sisters, my brothers, the counselor, the elderly, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck a misogyny foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn Unify or die. NBPP.org.
1: we never had any say in that we need our own nation
2: the two uh, great crimes in american history is obviously the you know destruction of this country's native american and the near destruction, I should say, not the, the destruction, the near destruction of this country's Native American population, the theft of their land. And on to work that land uh, was brought in uh, and Native Africans uh, into this country beginning in, in 1619. Um, those twin processes profoundly altered the, the, the shape of, of the world uh, and made this country possible. Obviously, first of all, you, you know, the land on which, you know, America and Americans currently reside. Uh, was was the land of Native Americans, but the people brought in to to, to break that land uh, uh, just transformed it. The, the profits uh, derived from slavery are, are are more extreme than I think are are, are commonly acknowledged. As I said yesterday, uh, uh, in 1860, uh, the combined worth of the four million enslaved Black people in this country was some three billion dollars, nearly 75 billion in, in today's uh, share of dollars. Uh, uh, cotton. Uh, in 1860 was this country's largest export—not just its largest export, it was the majority of exports uh, out of this country. So from a financial perspective, just the economics of it, it, it's absolutely impossible to imagine America uh, without uh, enslavement. The onset of the Civil War, the greatest uh, preponderance, the greatest population uh, per capita millionaires and multimillionaires in this country was in the Mississippi River Valley. It wasn't in Boston, wasn't in Chicago, wasn't in New York. The richest people in this country were slaveholders. Most of our earliest presidents were slaveholders. And the fact that they were presidents uh, is not incidental to the fact that they, they're slave- to, to their slaveholding. Uh, that was how they built their wealth. That was how Thomas Jefferson built his wealth. That was how George Washington built his wealth. Uh, uh, individual slaves were the equivalent of, say, owning a home today. They were uh, 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 people, but turned into objects of extreme wealth. So, just from the economic perspective, there's that. And just forgive me for extending a little bit, but there's also the fact of what America actually is culturally. Our greatest export today is our entertainment and it is our culture. It is impossible to imagine American culture uh, without jazz, without the blues, without hip-hop. It's impossible to imagine American cinema without, regrettably, Birth of a Nation. It's impossible to imagine American literature at this point without James Baldwin, without Toni Morrison. All of these are the, 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 the primary, secondary, and territory fruits of slavery. And so, if you strip slavery out of America, if you strip black people out of America, you really don't have in America. When I started in 2014, I actually was at that point for reparations, but you're referring back to something I wrote in 2012 when I was, you know, against. I wouldn't have been able to give you that answer. I, I didn't have that level of, of, of knowledge. And beyond that, I didn't have the level of knowledge on how it persisted. I mean, I had a vague sense of segregation, Jim Crow, etc., you know, in the 100 years after. But I didn't know about redlining, not, not, not in that degree of, of, of detail. Uh, and I didn't know how this uh, uh, extraction, as I call it, of wealth from the African-American community uh, uh, laundered through the state into the white community. You know, uh, uh, through through redlining, through the FHA loan program, uh, through the GI Bill, I, I just didn't have knowledge of that. And once I saw that, it's like, wow, this is a persistent you know uh, a pattern of of, of, a, of extraction that needs a really really radical answer. At that point, reparations made total total sense to me. Uh, but I will add that it made sense to plenty of people long before it made sense to me. I think, in this moment, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, this sort of—you uh, 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 know, all of these questions that, that may have been, you know, off of the table in 2016 or off the table in, in 2008, it, it, it's not that um, people weren't raising them. You know, it's not that, you know, people weren't weren't making a point. But I, I just think, you know, in, in reaction to, to, to what's going on to this country—in this country right now, people are just much, much more open you know um, and, and, and in terms of poverty and, and and race in this country again you know one one of the things that i really really wanted to stress is it's it's the level of poverty specifically that you see in the african american community it's not accidental it's not accidental this was uh, uh, this is part of the process the process of enslavement involves stealing something from someone it involves taking someone something from someone jim crow was theft first and foremost it was theft if i if i tax you, or if I tell you you have to be uh, loyal to this country and and, and pledge fealty to its laws, but then I don't give you the same degree of protection, I don't give you the same access to resources that I give to another group of people, I have effectively stolen something from you. I have stolen your tax money. I have stolen your your fealty. I have stolen your your, your loyalty. So when the state of Mississippi, for instance, you know, uh, uh, taxes black people and then builds you know, one facility uh, for education and, and another—one facility uh, for education for whites and then an inferior facility uh, for blacks, that's theft. That's theft. If I build, a, a, you know, a public pool system and then tell you you can't use that public pool system, that's theft. Uh, and so, that, 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 that is the long history, you know, of this country that doesn't end, again, conservatively, until, you know, in 1968. And so, uh, there are people who are very, very much alive, who have experienced that who are suffering the after effects and effects of that. Uh, and, and that's what, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the, the whole movement around reparations is about—reparations isn't just about enslavement. There was the 250 years of enslavement, that period of theft. After that, there was 100 years of terror, that period of theft. And, you know, I would argue, in fact, uh, our, our present system of mass incarceration emerges right out of that. And so, uh, you know, th- this notion that, that, that uh, a nation uh, somehow only— uh, um, especially when we're talking about its debits, that, 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 that it only lasts through the lifetime of its present generation, it's, it's clearly ridiculous. Uh, the state itself would fall apart if, if that were true. If all of our treaties were broken when this generation died, of all of our taxes and responsibilities, if we said to pensioners, you know, we will no longer pay you because the people that, you know, made the decisions about those wars are, are, are no longer alive, we would have a huge problem. As I said yesterday, to this very day—or at least I should say as recently as 2017 We were paying pensions to to, uh, uh, the heirs of of Civil War widows. When you have that lengthy of a history of of what can only be called robbery, often state-sanctioned and at best with the state looking the other way, uh, it it seems pretty logical that 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 one uh, aspect, and I would argue an essential aspect of fixing that situation is paying people back.
3: Those of us who've been following your work for a long time think of you first and foremost as a, as a blogger, um, although you were a reporter before you were a blogger, but I remember reading and loving your blog for many years. But now you've added a new title to your, um, to your resume, and that is Novelist. Um, tell us about the origin of this book. You've been working on it for a long time. Where did the idea come from?
2: Oh, man, we only got 20 minutes. Wow. Um, how do I answer that without taking up half the time?
3: Um, you can take as much time as you want. This is your <laughs> stage.
2: there's a ticking clock right there. <laughs> <laughs> Let me worry about that. Google will get, get the hook. <laughs> um, I, I, I would say um, that that question has a lot of answers, but I think the one that probably is most interesting, um, because it's a lot of things that came together, is the realization um, on the limitations of facts. Um, I, for, uh, during my earlier period as, as a blogger for The Atlantic, uh, I spent a good bit of time blogging about the Civil War, um, which was, at that time, and still remains one of the most misunderstood, uh, important uh, events in, in American history. And you could quote the causes of the Civil War from people who were stating their terms of aggression at the time. Um, you could assemble all the data you wanted, all the historical evidence you wanted that made it clear that the war was about the continuation and the expansion of slavery, and people would look at you and just would say, no, it's not. Um, And it it became really, really clear that you weren't really having a conversation about facts. Um, You were having a conversation about deeply, deeply embedded beliefs and myths. Um, And so it, it wasn't so much that you would even be able to persuade a certain sector with with evidence, with the kind of things that we assemble in in nonfiction, uh, it became pretty clear to me that that you needed to tell new stories. There was a story around Robert E. Lee, for instance. Um, There was a story around Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, the founder of the Ku Klux Klan, and thus the inaugurator of the largest domestic terrorism campaign in American history. And yet still in the state of Tennessee, there are more statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest than any other public figure. That's because certain stories and mythologies uh, had been erected around these people. And so I just became concerned, how could it be that the cause of enslavement, the cause of selling uh, off people's children, the cause of uh, destroying families, how did that become mythologized you know, and softened down into the General Lee and the Dukes of and it became clear to me that, that we needed new, new stories and so the water dancer my new novel is an attempt to tell a different
3: so this
2: this story
3: um does in, in some ways kind of create a new mythology of its own um you your main character um hiram walker he's the son of a plantation owner uh and an enslaved mother um and as a young man he discovers that he has these unusual powers um and I think one of the big themes that's run through your work, um, um, certainly your nonfiction work, is um, is the importance of memory. And I would say the, the power of amnesia. I mean, amnesia, I think, is kind of the American superpower. This ability to persuade ourselves of our innocence by not remembering. Um, so it struck me that... Um, that you created a character whose, whose superpower is memory. Um, could you just talk about that character and the importance of memory?
2: Yeah, I mean you're exactly correct. I mean, it's allegorical, you know. Um, and, and one of the, the, the dynamics uh, in the book is between uh, the slaveholders and the, uh, the enslaved. Um, we give them different names in the book because if you need different stories, you need different names. Um, and so in the book, uh, the enslavers are called the, the quality and the enslaved are called the task. And one of the things that the main character... Uh, comes to quickly realize as he matures throughout it is essential to the power of enslaving people, uh, essential to the ability to commit the very, very brutal dehumanizing acts that one must commit in order to enslave somebody is the power of forgetting, you have to forget. Um, We should pause a moment and talk about how intimate plantation slavery was. Um, It was not uncommon for a young black child to grow up right next to a young white child and for them to play together until they reached the relative age where they were charged with assuming their, their you know, uh, um, particular roles. And in order to, for that young white child to do what he or she had to do to that young black child, in order to do what the system mandates, you have to be good at compartmentalizing certain things. Because to dehumanize you, you can't remember playing with somebody. You, you can't remember the you know, little games that y'all played. You got little dances y'all played. You can't remember that person sticking up. You have to somehow confine them to, to over here. And so you know, one of the things that, that you know, Hiram talks about in the book, and I think this is actually true of our country, is that when we want to do horrible things, the first thing we have to do is we have to forget.
3: Mm. So what does Hiram remember? Walk us through this. story.
2: <laughs> Hiram remembers everything. <laughs> that's part of the problem. Hiram remembers every little thing. If Hiram were here right now, he could repeat, verbatim him everything that you and I just said, everything that Killer Mike and Anderson just said. Um, But he could not remember the things that are most intimate to him. And in the story, that is his mother. Um, His mother has been sold off by his father. Uh, Hiram is the product of of, of sexual violence. There is no choice under the system of enslavement. Uh, It's all coercion. Um, And even though he can remember every single you know, little detail, he only knows his mother because the enslaved community in which he exists has told him about his mother. But were it up to him, he probably would forget his mother, push her into the down there of his mind, as, as he says.
3: Mm. Um, so I, wanted, I want to linger a little bit on the, ma- on the language, and, and you talked about this already a little bit, but in, in the book you call the enslaved the task. Um, and the enslavers are called the quality. And um, I also noticed that you call there's there's a power that that Hiram has called conduction. Um, th- talk to me about how you kind of created the the language that you used in the book and why it was necessary to to bring these word these words which are uh, they're not new words but they're words being used in a different way than we typically do.
2: Yeah, I, I think naming things, um, and for those who are undergoing the oppression, those who have the boot on their neck uh, to claim the power is, is very, very important. I'll, I'll give an example if I can you know, bring, bring this together. Uh, for the past, I don't know, 20 or so years, it has been uh, pretty much uh, uh, the stipulation that we you know, refer to those who experience the, the crime of rape as rape survivors, no longer as rape victims. Um, and I like most you know, people with common sense and decent respect have used that terminology, though I can't tell you that I understood why I was using that terminology or, or, or what it quite meant. And it was only through writing this book that I, that, I, that I came to that. That is to say that there is a thing that somebody does to you, that somebody takes your body, they captures, capture your body, and they do the thing to you. And it is the name that people put on you which erases everything about you. So being raped is a thing that happened to you. It's not the thing you want to be seen as. It's not the thing that should obviate every little detail about your life. And I found a very similar thing with with enslavement. Um, Slave sounds like something that the person is, as opposed to the condition which somebody else put upon them. Black people in this country from the period of 1619 to, to, uh, 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 to 1865 were not slaves. They were enslaved. The thing was done to them. And underneath of that was all of their humanity, all of their you know, identity, all the laughing, all the crying, all the mourning, all the singing, all the dancing. It was not um, what was done to them was not their identity. And that became really, really important in the course of of writing the book. Um, And I have to tell you, that was a lesson to me. Because sometimes, you know, we're in this era, if I can just go off a little bit. We're in this era right now where sometimes people ask for new labels. And because we don't necessarily understand those labels, we deride them. You know, we don't comprehend why, you know, folks want new names. and, and, And so we, you know, make fun of them. We make jokes about them. But maybe it's worth being respectful and just calling people what they ask for. And maybe you'll catch up a little later. Maybe it just takes a second, you know? And, and for me, this was, this was really essential because the process of writing is always the process of learning, acquiring new things.
3: Mm. Um- I I was curious um, who some of your influences were when you were writing this book. I mean, I see elements of Octavia Butler. I see some, you know, obviously you're a comics writer, so you, you know, drew from that experience um, and your love of comics, some Toni Morrison, maybe some Stephen King. Um, What did you draw from? Because, I mean, you, you know, clearly fiction is something that you've been thinking about for a long time, but it's a shift.
2: Yeah, although oddly enough, I started this before I started Between the World and Me and before I started almost everything, and we were eight years in power. So most writing that this is older than almost anything that, mm. that most people know me for. Um, so uh, if I, I would say in no particular order, uh, my influences are uh, the great novelist E.L. Doctorow, mm-hmm. who was masterful at this task of remembering, of conjuring history and making you feel like you were right there. I read a book like Ragtime, and I felt like I was, you know, right there, Billy Basket. I feel like... I'm right there right in the midst of it Um, I would say uh, Toni Morrison uh, simply because I don't know of another novelist was a better crafter of sentences and that sounds very minor and very you know you know particular and maybe not very important but in fact I think part of the power that people achieve in their writing uh, when you're trying to achieve that power the main thing you're trying to do is be as efficient as possible and condense as much emotion, as much feeling, as much intensity into a space as small a space as you possibly can. And Tony was an absolute master of that. Um, and then finally, you know, Frederick Douglass, hmm. um, who is known as a, you know, a, a great American hero, as, as he should be, um, but was just a gorgeous writer. Like, I think people have just forgotten that. I mean, just a, a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful writer. David Blight in his new book, uh, Basically, is writing a, a, you know, a biography of a writer.
3: It's a fantastic book. Yeah. Yes. No,
2: it's a gorgeous and incredible book. And then, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I got to say this, you know, uh, you know, embodying the spirit that Anderson and Killer Mike just left. Hip-hop was my first literary influence. Mm-hmm. That will always be a, the first thing I, I think about.
3: I think I heard in an interview in which you said, uh, um, and I don't know if this is the order, Rakim... Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and, <laughs> was the third, comic books. Comic books. Right. I was like, that'll do yes, That'll do you. That'll do yeah, you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so um, I, I think of you primarily as a journalist, and you've you've talked a lot about the importance of reporting. Um, and one of the things that's really striking about this novel is how deeply reported it is. Mm. I mean, like the physical landscape of the of the. Um, of the plantation, but then also uh, the way that you managed to carry, capture the interior life of the enslaved, which there's one set of documentation that's very mm-hmm. you know, fragmented and partial to draw on, mm-hmm. but also how you managed to capture in a very human way, the enslaver, I mean, the, 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 the master. Um, so talk a little bit about your process of doing research for this book and how, you, um, how it came together.
2: Yeah, so I'll, you know, the first thing I'll just say really quickly on that note of um, capturing the, the 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 enslaver is um, if they're too evil, you don't believe them. You understand what I'm saying? And if they're too evil, it actually kind of loses its power because you have the ease of being able to say, oh, it's no way that that couldn't have been me. So in every one of these characters, there's some of me. You know, I had to imagine myself even into the people that are doing the worst possible things. I had to find myself you know, in it, because that's the only way the reader finds, you know, themselves in it. Uh, In in terms of the research, I mean, I I spent a good, I don't know, I mean, most of the last 10 years, you know, visiting, you know, uh, 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 enslaved plantations around this country. I went to the Whitney Plantation down in New Orleans, Shirley Plantation uh, in Virginia, various Civil War uh, sites, Montpellier in in Virginia, James Madison's, you know, home, uh, Thomas Jefferson's, uh, Monticello, which had a huge, huge influence, you know, on me and really, you know, helped me work through a lot of feelings about Thomas Jefferson. Um, and, and much of this book is probably influenced by that, uh, being about the physical architecture of Monticello and by many of the... Uh, um,
3: well, Lake like Monticello, Lockless is a failed
2: plantation. It's a right? fail. It is. A very, people so, often don't know what a lousy totally, businessman Thomas Jefferson totally, was. Yes, he was a horrible businessman. Um, you, 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 I mean, Thomas Jefferson, what I always tell people is Thomas Jefferson died in debt. You gotta be a really bad businessman to have no labor costs and die in debt. And... Pro tip. And less funny, less funny, um, when Thomas Jefferson died, they, look around, they looked around to figure out how they were gonna pay the debt, and they looked at the land, and they looked at the furniture, and they looked at all the nice things that they had accumulated, and they realized that virtually all of the value of the plantation was in the people that they had enslaved. Hmm. Um, and so to satisfy those debts, they sold off those people right on the lawn of Monticello and divided those families. Um, and that knowledge, that, that reality, you know what I mean, very much fueled me through this book. I, you know, I, I listen, everybody, I always tell everybody should go to Monticello, but African Americans specifically should really, really go uh, uh, to Monticello.
3: Um, you, you mentioned uh, families being separated. I mean, uh, we can't help but think about um, what's happening in our country right now with family separation Mm -hmm. um as you said this book's been with you a long time but um the idea of separating children from their parents is not a new american idea um this is something very old
2: no it's not and what i strongly suspect is whenever you seek to um oppress or exploit another group of people you 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 attack their families Um, i think that's always a line of contention you know i think um you know, in the most recent fight over marriage equality is about the right to form and protect families. That was a huge, huge line. And so I I don't even know that it was new for us so much as family is so um, elemental, you know, to any group of of, of human beings uh, that, you know, when you find yourself in a conflict and somebody's trying to exploit you, that's the first thing that, you know, uh, folks go for. I, I will say that it was very, very important for me to write this book in a certain way um, and to show the intensity of the and the love and the caring that was in black families, uh, because we exist in a time um, where we are often told uh, that the black family is pathological, that there are problems with the black family, it's bad culture in the black family, and men don't care about the kids. You know, women talk all kinds of ways today. All this, you know, all sorts of, you know. Negative ideas about how we relate to each other uh, uh, in family and whenever I do historical research, not just at this period, but whenever I've done you know, historical research here in America, what I found is quite the opposite. And in fact, people trying to form families among the most harshest and you know, unimaginable and, and, and violent conditions. And so it was very, very important for me when I was writing this book to focus on, on, on those efforts to maintain, strengthen, you know, and, and endure among black families during that period.
3: Um, John Conyers just passed away. Mm. Um, you know, rest in power. Um, you wrote the, um, your, your piece, The Case for Reparations. Um, I think you found yourself in the somewhat uncomfortable position of testifying before Congress about mm. reparations. Are, are you, I mean, it, how is it, How has it been from your vantage point to see the subject of reparations come to the foreground, um, be embraced by, uh, you know, credible contenders for the Democratic nomination, talked about in a different way in society?
2: I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased. Um, I am one who believes that uh, the dominant relationship between what we call black people in this country and what we call white people in this country is is, is one of robbery and, and theft. Uh, that extends, you know, from the 250 years of enslavement in this country through the 100 years of Jim Crow, in which black people were robbed of the right to vote, robbed of the right to participate uh, in the political process, uh, in which they were taxed, and an entire public architecture was erected uh, throughout the southern states—public pools, public universities, public schools, public libraries—that they were excluded from, despite paying into it. Uh, through the period, you know, through the same period, post-war period. Uh, uh, in more northern cities, when black people were attempting to exercise their rights to move into uh, nicer communities and were met with firebombs and you know, uh, legislation uh, from local officials that sought to you know confine them to ghettos. When, when, when you have that lengthy of a history of, of what can only be called robbery, often state-sanctioned and at best with the state looking the other way, uh, it, it seems pretty logical that, that, that one... Uh, aspect, and I would argue an essential aspect, of fixing that situation is paying people back, admitting what you did and paying people back. And so I, I'm one who've always, who's always viewed reparations, or not always, but certainly since I wrote the article, as uh, viewed you know, reparations not as part of a solution, not as uh, uh, one solution, but as, as the essential solution. I don't know how you uh, fix a situation where you have a, a 20 to one wealth gap in this country without some sort of transfer. Mm-hmm. Because the transfer is exactly what happened to us, a negative transfer.
3: A transfer of our labor, our yes,
2: values. our bodies. Our yes. bodies. Everything. Other people. Yes. Um,
3: so um, I hate to ask you what's next because you're just at the end of a really difficult book tour. I'm sure it's been exciting. I'm not a fit, yeah. exhausting. Oh, really? It's going on after this? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. I,
2: got, I got another uh, two out of three weeks.
3: Another two out of three
2: Yeah, weeks. you can ask me when my after this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. You know, I'm very, very pleased. You know, I uh, overpicked the book up. I was very, very... Uh, Shocked and surprised and just you know elated by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy that there's an audience. I'm happy that you guys are uh, here listening to my haranguing uh, uh, on the country and <laughs> things that we'd rather not talk about. Um, and so I have another two weeks of that, you know, and then I'm gonna take my family on vacation for Thanksgiving and I'm gonna chill out for a little while. That's what's next for me, and I'm gonna enjoy my holiday.
3: All right. Well, you deserve it, Tanasi Coats. Thank you very much. <laughs>
4: Good evening. I'm Steve Edwards, the Executive Director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, and I wish this event had garnered more interest. Uh, It's fantastic to see such a packed audience for what we know will be a terrific conversation tonight. And before we get into a formal introduction for tonight's event featuring Ta-Nehisi Coates and the Cates for reparations, I want to make a special thanks to all of our partners here who helped make tonight's event possible. Uh, The International House, which is hosting us tonight, this is part of their Global Voices series, our friends at the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture, the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs, and the National Public Housing Museum. Please join me in giving them a warm round of applause for all of this. You know, I think many journalists, many writers will spend their entire career hoping to have the kind of impact cumulatively that ta has had uh, in just his time as a writer, but particularly in one article in the June issue of The Atlantic. The case for reparations, 15,000 words, set deeply here in Chicago, spanning hundreds of years of history, took a topic that for so many of us had been marginalized, historicized, and largely absent from the public conversation and put it front and center. Um, To put some perspective on the kind of energy and conversations that this triggered, not only in evidence here tonight by all of you here, um, more online visitors read that article in a single day than any previous Atlantic magazine story. We're talking about a publication with 150 plus year history. Uh, The June issue sold 60% more copies on the newsstand than its counterpart the same year ago. And in more than 200 events that we've been able to host here in our short two years on campus at the Institute of Politics, this has been without question one of the most anticipated conversations tonight. Um, This is part of our series of events where we hope to elevate and expand the public conversation. We'll be taking a a brief hiatus, as all of you do, for Thanksgiving and then back at it the first week of December. Uh, We will have a conversation that will focus on national security, featuring the Washington Post's David Ignatius, also former Congresswoman Jane Harman, and former U.S. Ambassador to NATO Evo Dalder. That will take place on Thursday the 4th. You can find out more about that event and all of our other events at politics.uchicago.edu. Tonight's event is being uh, live-streamed and recorded for podcasts. You can check out all of our podcasts on iTunes by subscribing to UChicago IOP. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Politics. Finally, um, during our conversation tonight, we will, as is customary at the Institute of Politics, open the floor to your questions. And we ask, though, that when you do, we're going to expand, actually, the time for questions tonight, just given um, the size of this audience and um, I know the interest that many of you will have in joining the conversation. But to accommodate as many of you as possible, we ask that you keep the questions short and to the point. Uh, We ask that they actually be a question. Um, and the moderator has reserved the right to sort of cut you off if, if that's not the case. And in keeping with the university's values, we also ask that you uphold those standards of inquiry and civility and open discourse. I'm here to formally introduce our speakers in our program tonight is Anastasia Kaiser. She's a fourth year at the university majoring in economics and public policy. She's a member of our student executive board. And uh, tonight's event, uh, may not have happened if it weren't for her. We have a proposal process where students actually can suggest speakers and programs that the institute will bring to campus. And she brought the Ta-Nehisi Coates suggestion through our uh, proposal process. I'm proud to say, even before the Case for Reparations cover story, please join me in welcoming Anastasia Kaiser to the podium.
5: Tonight we are incredibly fortunate to be joined by James Bennett, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and by ta Coates, a senior editor and writer for The Atlantic, to talk about ta powerful piece, The Case for Reparations, which most of you are holding and which all of you should read. The article which was published in the June 2014 issue of the Atlantic and is set mostly in Chicago was the product of two years of reporting and was released to overwhelming reader response and to overwhelming critical praise. The case for reparations argues that long after slavery ended in America, decades of racist policies and deliberate injustices from redlining to Jim Crow have systematically wronged generations of African-Americans and that, quote, until we reckon with our compounding moral debts, America will never be whole. ta Coates is currently the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. visiting scholar at MIT, where he teaches a class on writing and journalism. In 2008, he published The Beautiful Struggle, a memoir about growing up in West Baltimore. And when I told people that I would be introducing ta tonight, three of them said to me separately, he's one of the people in America I admire the most, and he's maybe one of the most admired journalists of our time. James Bennett is the 14th editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Prior to joining the magazine in 2006, he was the Jerusalem bureau chief for The New York Times. Both of these figures are incredibly inspiring to me as an aspiring journalist, so I hope you join me in giving a very warm welcome to our two distinguished guests this evening, James Bennett and Ta-Nehisi Coates.
6: Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve and Anastasia. I'd like to say thank you to the Institute of Politics um, for having us out and International House for hosting us tonight. And thank you to all of you for being here. Um, Ta-Nehisi struck a, a very, very deep chord with this piece. And um, it's a wonderful compliment and testament to the power of his work um, that you're all here. We're going to talk for maybe a half hour at the start and then open it up to questions from you guys. Um, We'd like to get to as many as we can about this story or about other subjects. Conor Hossie's been writing about that might be on your minds from Bill Cosby to um, (laughs) Ferguson to to, uh, what it's like to learn French at his um, advancing age. Uh, (laughs) But first, we're going to show a video that The Atlantic did to accompany... This piece, since the maybe you should set up the video. Talk a little bit about what people are going to see.
2: Well, uh, you know, one of, one of the cool things about uh, working on the case for reparations is uh, shortly after I, you know, presented the idea uh, to to myers, including James, uh, there was this immediate feeling that uh, this was the sort of piece that we could approach in a multimedia uh, sort of way. So, if you look at uh, how the case for reparations looks online. Um, the Atlantic puts tremendous amount of resources into you know all of its stories. Anytime you see you know like a big feature like that, what's behind that is you know a lot of hard work in terms of editing, a lot of hard work in terms of fact checking, a lot of hard work in terms of copy editing, a lot of hard work in terms of reporting and writing resources. Uh, but I think you know there was some feeling uh, among folks at The Atlantic that you know uh, more resources could be put in another direction, and that was to create a, a, a multimedia. Uh, feel for the story. So if you read it online, you can see uh, we have maps of Chicago, for instance, that reflect the red line. That's, you know, a big part of it. Uh, you can see that we have, you know, primary text that you can look at when we're talking about the period of of enslavement in this country. You can even see uh, the, the original piece uh, that we did, <laughs> that we didn't even know we had done until we started researching this, but that we had done on our North Lawndale and, and, and contract uh, buying. And... Uh, in 1972. In 1972. In 1972. And so uh, it was, you know, you know, quite a joy to be able to come back, you know, to, to North Lawndale and, and, and write about the neighborhood and, you know, uh, revisit the issue. And one of the ways we did it uh, is in this film, which uh, profiles the, the Contract uh, Bias League. Uh, and this is, you know, I, I, tremendously important to me because what it shows is that, you know, you can talk about, you know, uh, the, the, the boot on the neck you know, of African-Americans uh, in, in a city like Chicago or nationally. But the other side of that is people who are struggling against There's always a struggle you know, against it. So this, this video is very much about that struggle.
7: The question of housing is one of the major problems this country faces. By and large, Blacks live in substandard housing. Those who manage to fight their way out of it frequently pay a large
8: penalty to do so.
9: I came from Birmingham, Alabama, but I came to Chicago for a better living and a job. I bought here, this house, in 58. It ain't nothing to brag about, but it's mine.
7: My name is Clyde Ross. I was born in uh, Clarkville, Mississippi. I bought this house in 1958. I moved in this house in
1: 1957. It was mostly a white area. And when they said that the the niggers was coming, they didn't say black. They said the niggers was coming. And... uh, they start, just start moving away. Mostly everyone that was black, they had been sold a contract. If you missed the payment in three months, they could take the property back. No lawyer, no nothing could help you. That was it.
4: There are blocks like this scattered throughout the Lawndale section of Chicago's West Side Ghetto. The people who live here bought their homes from real estate speculators that double or triple their value, and they bought on contract because they couldn't get conventional or FHA mortgages. Under the contract, the buyer makes installment payments at high interest, but he builds no equity. If he defaults on even one payment at any time during the contract, he loses the property and everything he's paid into it.
7: We'll pay 26000 and the house is worth 12000 That means I was overcharged quite a bit. And the contract situation was so bad until, uh, well, there was something broke down. You had to fix it. Uh, you had to pay your water and gas and electricity and your taxes and everything else. But you didn't have ownership.
1: How could we be charged like that if that wasn't a, a law? And how would they, the law let them do this? But they said it was their property. They had a choice to sell it at whatever price they wanted to. And if you bought it, then that was
7: on you. We're three guys. <laughs> I worked at the council, post office, and the delivered pieces four or five years. I get home at 10 o'clock every night, you know. Leave home every, at six o'clock every morning. Kids me sleep; they don't see me. And when they did me on the weekends, i tell them something, they look, at, they look at their mama and say, well should I do it or should I not? Who is this guy, you know? I was a stranger in my own home because of that contract thing. Really a stranger. I said, this is not going to work. These people who have cheated us out of more than money, we have been cheated out of the right to be human beings in a society. We have been cheated out of buying homes at a decent price. Now, it's time now. We've got a chance now. The Contract Buyers League have presented a chance for these people in this area to move out of this grip of society, to move up. Stand on your own two feet. Be human beings, fight for what you know is right.
10: Fight!
11: I really believe that, you know, ultimately what we're after is some kind of communication among human beings that can only be affected when people can approach each other on the basis of equality.
6: Yeah, but even though you are keeping within the law, this is really war, isn't it? Uh, Yes, it is.
8: The college students and I went up and down the streets and asked people if they bought on contract. And we discovered that the average overcharge was $10,000 and then computed the monthly payments so that we knew that black folks were paying a race tax of about $20,000 per family. You would just go
9: to their house and ask them, is you on a contract? Some of them say, I don't know, some of them didn't want to talk to you. And they, they would say, no, I'm on a mortgage. But when they bring the paper, I knew it wasn't on a mortgage because that's what I had a piece of paper. Everybody, frankly, was on contract.
8: People on the west side and the south side were being blamed for things that were not of their own making. This is the best example I can think of of institutional racism white folks created the ghetto and it drives me crazy today even that we don't admit that
4: the people of lawndale organized the contract buyers league during the past year the league began urging large numbers of buyers to withhold the payments on their contracts by withholding the payments the league has managed to renegotiate enabling the buyer to build equity and saving him an average of ten thousand dollars
8: there were 550 families in the payment strike. People knew how to handle pickets. People knew how to handle you telling their neighbors. But when you're hitting them in the pocketbook with a payment strike, that was serious business. They said, well, you got to pay this money, at $2.60 every
7: month. No, we ain't paying you nothing until you get this contract right. They
8: came up Rang the bell, still in bed, and the wife went to the door. They served her with a paper, and then they came on in.
0: What did they say to you?
8: They said they were going to evict us.
0: And how your, where's your furniture now? Out on the street. What do you plan to do? Do you believe that you should forward it and pay it like you
9: were
8: doing before? No, I won't. I won't give them the money. We just wanted to get a
7: fair price for the house, you know, and we wanted the mortgage where we could have Ownership of the house, and the contract violated brought us to a point where we could understand that uh, we could do something about this.
0: The people of CBL have come together, no matter what happens, we are fighting for one thing: that is justice. And believe me, as long as we stick together and keep growing in large numbers like we've done now, something got to help us.
9: I've always wanted my own house, because I worked for white people when I was in the South, and they had beautiful homes, and I always said one day I was going to have me one. And I
1: finally did. The house was paid for. No more fright of losing it. It felt good. It really felt good.
6: And uh, two of the heroes of that story are actually with us tonight, um, Clyde Ross and Jack McNamara. Gentlemen, would you mind standing, please? End. Is that a story of triumph or it's despair? Funny,
2: well, that's funny you ask that because um, even as I was watching it, it, it bothers me a little bit. I mean, no disrespect really to costumes, our, our, our genius, you know, video editor. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I'm happy, you know, for, for the great work, you know, Jack did uh, for Mr. Ross for his, you know, ridiculous, incredible, almost superhuman determination. Um, I have, you know, no problem saying that were I in that situation, I, w- I would have lost my home. Um, and, and I don't think that's, you know, um, a particularly shameful thing. The people that you, you saw, and, and I was aware of this, and, you know, I think, you know, Mr. Ross and everybody went through this, were aware of the stories that you, that you hear about heroism. These are the exceptional people. The vast majority of black people, though, and, you know, this can never be forgotten. The vast majority of black people are ordinary, um, just like the vast majority of, of, of humanity is ordinary. Most people are not going to be able to work, you know, three different jobs. At the same time, you know in order to hold on to their homes it's just it's just not you know uh within the normal human you know range of capacity, and so most people in that situation in that system uh, did lose their homes, you know we had that another thing, you know, but they they did lose their home and other people you know were enriched because of that and so Um, I think this video is very, very important because I think, you know, obviously Mr. Ross, I think uh, Ms. Weatherspoon, I think Ms. Lewis, I think Jack, I think all the work that they put in, all the work of the Contract Buyers League, you know, it deserves, you know, uh, recognition and deserves that great, you know, standing applause that that folks just gave. But at the same time, I I don't want um, people to watch that video and walking away with this kind of smug happiness that, for instance, we often have about the civil rights movement. You know, this need to give ourselves, you know, prizes and, and, and awards because somebody uh, through a struggle that they should not have had to, you know, wage in the first place, never forget that. Never forget that it was unjust that, you know, Mr. Roth had to work three jobs in the first place. Uh, you know, you know, managed to do it. It's, um, I, yeah, I think about, this is a quick digression. I think about this. I was watching a documentary on uh, the Freedom Riders uh, a while back. And uh, actually two weeks ago, not a while back. <laughs> not that long ago.
10: <laughs>
2: because, you know, what that is is going to flatter what I'm about. It's going to flatter me a little bit too much. What I, so I, I thought about the Freedom Rises, and my understanding was the Freedom Rises the that they had gone south and they were trying to, you know, integrate uh, interstate, in you know, bus lines and integrate, you know, the waiting uh, areas and everything. Uh, that they were actually trying to affect a change of law. What I did not realize was that, in fact, segregation by letter of the law was illegal at that point. The Supreme Court had already ruled on it. And what the Freedom Riders were actually trying to do was to get the federal government to enforce the law as it was. You know, and that, I mean, and to see that, and then, you know, to see Bobby Kennedy and the way that, you know, he assaulted them in the press, uh, to see, you know, how, you know, for President Kennedy, how, you know, they they were just basically, you know, a pain, you know, in the rear end. And and you think about that, and yet everybody wants to be proud about the Freedom Riders today. You know, but how did we as a state regard them in, in that time? You know, so I think, like, it's very, very important that, you know, you know we as a country, we as a state not, you know, uh, use these moments like this, you know, like all these great anniversaries that we're having right now to, to give ourselves, you know, too many accolades and to feel uh, uh, too good about it. You know, the fact that Mr. Ross, the fact that, you know, uh, I think the estimate was 85% of African Americans who bought homes during that period were in a contract loan situation was fundamentally unjust. Um, that can never, you know, be made good by the fact uh, that, you know, some folks through their own, you know, ingenuity, through their own dignity, through their own hard work fought back. The fight itself, that it was brought to them, the war itself, as, you know, Jack talked about in the film, that was watching them was fundamentally unjust, and I think, you know, that that should always be remembered.
6: So let's back up a step or so, and, and why don't you tell the story? How was it that you found yourself in Mr. Ross's living room? Why did you choose to focus on <laughs> North and, and and more broadly Chicago right? when you were thinking about... Making the big argument right. that you were making.
2: Well, <laughs> Chicago, as I'm sure you know, most of the people in this room know, is you know one of the most studied cities you know in, in America. Um, you know, sociology basically got its start right here at the university of Chicago. So, uh, you know, beginning you know uh, from you know a place of knowing that you're going to have to make a very very difficult argument for reparations, right? Like most people are not really going to want to hear that. You really need to have as much data as you possibly can. Um, And for Chicago, I mean, it's just a wealth of sociological data, you know, and and history, frankly, on on Chicago. And the great thing about that, though, is that a lot of that reflects nationally. So you can, you know, there are many books, many studies that can tell you about, you know, what redlining was and what its effect was specifically in Chicago. But we know that redlining was a national system. We're, we're, We're very aware of that. So you can, you know, come to a city like Chicago and, you know, render this really, really, you know, deep and detailed story, because so many academics, quite frankly, have done so much research uh, uh, before you. Um, and then you can, you know, by that measure, you know, tell, tell a story about the, the, the nation uh, as a whole. So the first, you know, that's a long way of saying laziness. Um, that's the first thing. You know, I mean, and this is like, I mean, we're working on something else right now, which I won't talk about. But one of the things, is, you know, it's like, oh, we can't go back to Chicago. again. We can't do that. And one of the things, that, yeah, I haven't said this to you, but one of the things that I'm already facing is that there's just not the same wealth of sociological data that you have in Chicago to, to, to make a case. So that was the first thing. The second thing was, you know, in North Lawndale, um, I read Burl Satter's, you know, tremendous, tremendous book, you know, just a history of, of contract, uh, uh, contract, you know, the contract uh, lending system. In North Lawndale specifically, it's a beautiful, beautiful historical work. And uh, even though, you know, uh, doesn't make an argument for reparations uh, in the book, he's very clearly, you know, leading that way. I mean, it's like an unfinished sentence, you know. Uh, and you can say that in, lot, in a lot of the work about, you know, Chicago, Arnold Hirsch's, you know, work, uh, Making the Second Ghetto, you can see the unfinished sentence that somebody actually did something and that there should be some sort of accounting for it. And so she rendered, you know, frankly, North Lawndale so, you know, deep and detailed in that book, and after reading about the system, you know, I believe Bro published a book in like '04, maybe or something like that, so, you know, I was coming almost 10 years later, and I wondered how many of those people, you know, who might have either been interviewed in her book or who were, you know, around, I mean, who were, you know, who had been a part of the Contract bias League, who had bought homes in that way might actually still be alive, because I thought it was very, very important to not allow people to easy out saying well you're talking about reparations you're talking about something that happened 150 years ago no we are talking about a system of plunder that begins in 1619 and continues up you know arguably if you want to be conservative until you know the 1960s and that people who went through that are alive and their children are alive and we can depict and show you know how that works and so bro was very kind uh, connected me with uh, Jack, who was, you know, just exceedingly, exceedingly kind with, with his time, uh, who then connected me with several folks who had been involved in the contract biasly. Mr. Ross was actually lucky enough with the first person I talked to, um, and I, I don't know if I've ever told him, but he was really, really a guiding force in the sense that when I walked in, and I asked him, I said, Mr. Ross, um, you know, uh, where you, where's your family originally from? And he said, Clarksdale, Mississippi. I said, well, why, why did you come to Chicago? And he said to me, well, we, we, I was seeking the protection of the law. And I didn't quite understand what he was saying. I asked him again, I said, you know, can you explain that? And he said, well, there were no black lawyers in Clarksdale. There were no black police officers in Clarksdale. Uh, there were no black prosecutors in, in Clarksdale. Uh, if you were black in Clarksdale, that meant that there was no law. That meant that people could just come and take things from you. Uh, and nobody, there was nobody there to protect you. There was nothing to appeal to. And that, like, really, you know, shifted the frame for me because traditionally when people talk about the Jim Crow era, you know, as I said, there are all these symbols of civil rights that, you know, people like to, you know, trot out to make us, you know, feel, you know, really, really good about the fact that, you know, we don't have, you know, certain signs up anymore. I mean, that's sort of how we see the South. But what Mr. Ross was talking about was, no, no, this was engineered anarchy. This was, you know, ruled by, you know, pirates, a bandit class coming in you know, and taking things from us, and us, you know, being branded effectively outside of society, outside of the protections of society. And so I just, you know, thought, you know, if you could, you know, sort of show that, that string, you know, all the way from Clarksdale, you know, all the way up to, to North Lawndale, where you see, you know, a group of people cut out of the usual channels of, of home buying and then left to the, the, the predation of pirates to do whatever they want to those people, to take from those people, to plunder from those people. I, I thought it was, you know, just really, really important to show.
6: One of the amazing things you do in this piece, and I think in all your work, is you have this ability to reach into history and extract news from it, you know? I mean, it's our story of ourselves, but we actually don't walk around thinking about it or talking about it. I should have said, actually, it's also true that you come to Chicago just because you like Chicago. I do come to Chicago, (laughs) but there
10: is that, right? Um,
6: (laughs) And so one of the things you do in this piece is show that – the, the reparations conversation has traditionally been dominated in this country by talk about what's owed because of slavery. What you show is actually no; it's about the denial of the ability to accumulate wealth across generations. Mm-hmm. But you also show that there's a very old tradition of talking about mm-hmm. and even paying reparations mm-hmm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that?
2: Yeah, and this is like one of those things where you just have you know a, a hunch as a historian, and, and it, like there's a very beautiful simplicity to a reparations argument that, you know, has reverberation, you know, across history. Um, Laws are passed to keep people from taking things unjustly from other people. And it, when, in the case that, you know, things are taken, we often penalize people, you know, for, you know, repayment. That's just a basic thing that, you know, is as old as human society. And if that's the case, then it can't be as it's often presented that, you know, this argument started in 1960. You know, certainly there was someone who was enslaved and realized that something had been taken from them and um, that they should get it back, (laughs) you know. So I had like this hunch, and then, you know, as soon as I started, you know, calling around and talking to historians, you know, it became clear that, you know, reparations, the argument for reparations is literally as old as the country itself. I was just doing some research. It's funny how things hit you. I was doing some research today, um, just having this discussion via Twitter, (laughs) having this discussion via Twitter uh, about um, the roots, you know, of all these Ivy League schools, and enslavement, right? And no one knows about this. It's a great book by Craig Wilder, Ebony and Ivy, that explores all of this. And one of the things that people don't know is uh, you know, the seed money uh, for Harvard Law School goes back to a gentleman by the name of Isaac Royal. Uh, Isaac Royal was a big, big slaveholder uh, in the Caribbean and also in Massachusetts. And I didn't make this connection when I when I had read the story. But Isaac Royal is, you know, uh, turns out to be a royalist. <laughs> It's funny, I turns to be a, it's a little bit of corny humor for you there. Corny historian humor, royal royal. royal <laughs> <laughs> not I mean, come on, you got to laugh at that point. Sorry, That was really corny, I'm sorry.
10: Um,
2: <laughs> and so, you know, he, he, he flees after, you know, the revolution. And one of the people who he, who he owns is, is Belinda Royal, and he leaves all of these, you know, resources aside. You know, and, and Belinda Royal, with the help of the free African-American population uh, in Boston, in the 18th century, the late 18th century, uh, makes the case. You know, listen, I was, you know, taken, you know, from Africa at a very, very young age. I was worked all my life. And much of what, you know, this man has accumulated here in Boston is the direct result of my labor. I should get something for that. Um, and, and crazily enough, she actually does get something. The Legislature, you know, passes a pension that they take basically out of the property that Mr. Roy owns, and she actually, you know, uh, gets reparations. We have a whole. Our uh, tradition, the Quakers, for instance, very, very big. Early Quakers in the 18th century, very, very big. It you know, immediately occurred to them that um, when you enslave, enslaved, everybody knows like, the Quakers took this stand against enslavement and said, listen, you know, uh, at least in certain sections of the Quakers, if you're going to hold slaves, you can't be a Quaker anymore. What, what less people know is that in a lot of the meetings around the states, they also took a stand and said, and not only do you have to free you know, all the people that you've enslaved, but you actually have to give them things. So There's a history of, 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 of Quakers paying out. Reparations. There's a history of, of even our founding fathers paying out our reparations. I want to get this right, but I'm pretty sure that when George Washington, you know, he leaves in his will, that all of, you know, the folks that he's enslaved will be emancipated. He might just cut them loose. I, I want to say this, and forgive me if I'm not getting the figure right, but I believe he gives them 10 acres and leaves, you know, money left aside for their education. So um, we, we have a whole history of this. There's a guy we quote, you know, who was president of Yale, who immediately says, he says listen, to cut these people loose, you know, and just to, you know, leave them into the wild and not do anything for them, I mean, you, know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a travesty. You know, and it will be down upon us. You know, we will pay this. When God, you know, comes before us and, you know, has to make a judgment, you know, he'll remember that this is how, you know, we handled one-on-one our, our, our greatest sins. So one of the things, and this is just theoretical, one of the things that you notice, though, is you can trace the history of white people actually making the argument for reparations until roughly about 1820 or 1830. And what happens around 1820 or 1830 is you get this cotton boom in the South. And enslaved black people, the value of enslaved black people just shoots through the roof, such to the point that by the time you get to 1860, there are 4 million enslaved black people uh, in the South. Uh, and taken together, they're worth some $4 billion, uh, a number that exceeds basically all of the assets, all the productive capacity, all the railroads, all the nascent factories, basically you know, all the banks, everything that we have, In America put together is worth less uh, than the enslaved uh, black people in this country Um, and that's like a uh, you know I'm not saying that as a definite in terms of like when you see this reparations argument trail off among white people but it's you know subject for further study (laughs) and so what happens is after 1865 when black people are you know um, uh, when you get emancipation uh, it becomes a primarily primarily black argument so oh, not totally, not totally. You know, you have like actually ex-Confederate officers with whole so whole, whole sorts of schemes for reparations. You know, uh, but then you have just it becomes a you know a black political tradition uh, of asking for it. So I think the importance of that is to understand that this is not you know something that you know some crazy you know wooly-eyed you know radicals came up with in 1968 and suddenly decided. Because you people, know, what people will say is. Well, you should, you know, ask for it in 1865. Well, people did ask for it in 1865. You know, the society was not structured such that, you know, to, to, to grant that request. We have people on the record, you know, asking for it. And and the fact of the matter is, the strategy of the state has always been to deny the request at the time, and then once those people die, to say, you know, what we should have paid it, but it's too late now. I mean, this is just a typical, you know, a, a, a strategy of, of of running out the clock. But I think it's important to know that this is not, you know, an argument that begins in the 1960s. This is a very, very old argument in America.
10: Can you
6: describe a bit about your own intellectual history with this idea? Uh, <laughs> Anastasia mentioned your memoir earlier, The yeah. Beautiful Struggle, story of your growing up in West Baltimore. I'm wondering what you, how you understood growing up the kind of relative position, economic position of whites and blacks in America, what the reasons were
2: right. for it,
6: and when it began to make sense to you that there was maybe some um, justice in a solution like this.
2: Right. So, you know, I, mean, I talked about this earlier, very early on in, in, in my life, and I, and I think this is true for a lot of, you know, of black people. Um, you, you understand the community that you live in is very, very different than at least America as it projects itself, you know, out to the world on television. Um, and, and you're clearly, clearly aware of that. Um, I, I had, the, you know, the great, you know, luxury and the great asset of having, you know, fairly, you know, well-read parents, you know, who, you know, and I have a lot of books in my house so you get some sense that, okay, you know, this is related to racism. You know, if you wanted to understand why you live a certain way and why other folks live a certain way, you know, uh, you, you, you get the answer. You know, racism. Well, in the crudest speech, you know, in some of our houses, you get the white man. That's like the argument, you know. And I can remember being a kid trying to picture, like, the white man. What what, actually, what does that look like? Like, this is like one white Man, literally, like, you know, like sketching. Okay, black people are gonna live over here. White people, like, who is that? mean, you know? But in black communities, other people say, "Oh, a white man, they gonna let you have a white man." White man, wow. And there were no white people in my neighbors. I didn't know any white people. So I was like, that was a physical. I have like that as a very strong memory. Like wondering, is that an individual person? You know. Or what you have to do you know you get that answer and then you you know as you get older and you know you if you're curious that you know doesn't quite like totally add up you know and people tell you things like they say well you know the, the, the entire country you know is built on your back you know it's built on taking things from you they ripped you off da 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 um and that's you know rhetorical but i'm not mocking that because you know what became clear later to me was that that reflects some deep intuitive sense of the truth even if you can't you know Connect all the dots. You have some sense of what happened. so, you know, as I, you know, grew older and I, you know, went off, you know, to school and you know, studied the problem even more. I actually moved away from reparations, you know, because there's this tendency in you know these institutions of higher education and you know just an exploration, just to try to complicate everything, which I think is a good impulse. But sometimes it ain't that complicated, man. You know, sometimes just, sometimes it's just, you know, you took that from that person and that, you know, it's just math. It's just one plus one. But there's, like, this tendency, and we, you know, this is good. I don't want, you know, I don't think this is bad. Like, I don't think it's a bad phase. They said, well, you know, have you accounted for class, and, you know, have you thought about this, and then, you know, how does gender figure into this? And that's good. You should ask those questions. Please don't take that the wrong way. You should, but a lot of times you ask, you, can, you ask those questions, and I went through that phase over and over. Maybe it doesn't account for this. Maybe it was that. Maybe it's this. Maybe there's a system, you know, over here. What, you know, what do you think about poor whites in Appalachian? You go through all of those phases <laughs> of trying to figure it out, right? and then you come back and what you end up with even if you say it in some you know, more sophisticated ways, you end up with the white man that's what you say <laughs> you come back now, you don't say it like that right that's not how you say it <laughs> because that's not what it is but you know that guy who you know when you were 8 years old was like you know you've been ripped off you know he built it all on your back you said damn he was right you know? <laughs> But now, but it's good, because, see, because you went through all those phases, you have the science, right? And you can, you know, cite studies and dates, and you get figures, and you can put, you know, all of this mathematics behind what was just intuitive before. And that, you know, just makes it, you know, really, really stronger. But I tell you, that that was deeply, deeply chastening to me, you know, to come back to some truths. You know, I was raised around um, a, a very, very radical, you know, uh, uh, black nationalist tradition and you know as i got older it was a strong impulse to interrogate that and subject it to as much rigor as as, as i could and you know i would not have predicted this say 15 years ago but the fact of the matter is what happened was you ended up coming back to that that the science itself ultimately brought you back not to all of the conclusions not to all of them but certainly to some of them you know certainly to 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 reparations you know and i did that you know i would not you know say that i was um I can't tell you that, you know, I was always on board with that. I can't tell you that, you know, it's very nice that, you know, the the article has reached, you know, masses of people. But the thing that really, really humbles me is there were some people who did not need to read Making a Second Ghetto, who did not need to make five visits to North Lawndale, who did not, you know, need to, you know, go through all of this, you know, rigmarole, you know, that I needed, you know, to reach, you know, a basic essential truth about what had happened.
6: Do you have a clearer picture now of what this white man actually looks like?
2: No. <laughs> no, 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 because I think, like, I mean, you've got to think about that some sort of metaphorical sense. I mean, it's the way of using a person, <laughs> you know, to, to implicate an entire system, I think, or to represent an entire system. But yeah, that, it was a very interesting point. I think in my mind, I picture Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's like I Ronald. But you know what? You know what I think that is, I, I think that's just because, actually, in fact, I think that's just because Reagan was, a pres, was president through the period in which I was hearing those words. You know what I mean? So like for the early period of my life, when my, you know, when my family and my, you know, the friends of my parents would say things like that, Reagan was the president. And so it's like an immediate like, association with that in my mind. <laughs> it's not even policy-based. I mean, you can make that association too, but I think a lot of it is just being a child during that period.
6: <laughs> can you categorize reactions to this piece? What kind of feedback have you gotten? You've been- there was immense reaction in the moment and subsequent weeks. You've been out talking about it some since then. Well, actually, a, a, good, a good deal and continue yeah, to write right, about it. Right. And so young, old, white, black, male, female, how would you describe what kind of patterns you've seen and how people react to this argument?
2: Well, so I mean, for me, the most interesting and I, you know, I would argue the most gratifying has been you know, um, African-Americans who are above the age of, say, 60 or so um, because they have direct experience with this um, and you know and I you know I share some of this you know with you, you get you know letters from people's children or from the people themselves and they say that was me that was me that you know that that happened and you know and that that has not simply come from Chicago that's that's been you know a national outpouring um, that is gratifying in the sense that you know folks got their story told and you know that, that, that pleases me uh, a great deal um, across the board for african-americans again there was this intuitive sense that somebody did something to us and they owe us now i can't give you you know all the math on that i can't you know outline how the system happened but i'm gonna tell you i know this ain't a mistake you know and i know that i'm not crazy uh so for a lot of people i think for a lot of african-americans um the feeling has been um, uh, um reassuring almost i was not crazy you know, um, so I think, like, that, that's been one thing. And I think, again, in the way that the Atlantic did it, like, you know, you can look at the article, but then you can actually, to, like, physically see the maps. I think it's just so, like, jarring. I mean, it's not even really hard. This doesn't, you know, again, this is one plus one. You know, red line was here. That's where we lived. This is what the policy was. You know, um, and we have so many quotes. I mean, you know, you know, just to have, like, I
6: mean, I, you know. So the I just, actual requirements for... Right. So you
2: couldn't give a mortgage. Right, to, right, right. Uh, and and they're and they're right you know, there. Yeah. And and or, or quotes like from say like that the trade organization, that, you know, at one point we got like the trade organization, you know, very explicitly saying, here's who you should not sell to in, in white neighborhoods. You shouldn't sell, you know, to, you know, a madam, you shouldn't sell to, you know, a drug dealer or whatever, near do well, a thief. And you shouldn't sell to a black person, you know, of means who thinks that, you know With a college degree, who thinks Right, right, who thinks right that college, they have a right, right. to improve themselves yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, and so it's like clear, I mean, that's just one plus one, man. You know, um, and I think like all I talk about implicit racism and trying to, you know, read things into things and, you know, things not, you know, has blinded us to how much of that is so real. So I think for folks to see that, it's like, you know, you know, it says, well, yeah, yeah, I wasn't crazy. And then, you know, there's been a reaction from, from white people, which has been really, really interesting to me, um, who just like come up and say, I, I, I just didn't know. I mean, that's just the main, you know, I didn't know. How did this happen? I had no idea. I had no idea. Somebody will say, I had this conversation just uh, you know, a few weeks ago. Somebody says, you know, I grew up in this neighborhood, not here so far, but a particular neighborhood. I think the woman was from Milwaukee. And she said, and I, I, you know, I was friends with a, with a little black girl, and her dad was a doctor. And I remember going to her house and wondering why her dad was a doctor and they lived in that neighborhood. And I, I didn't understand why they didn't live in a neighborhood like we lived in. And that just sort of, you know, you know, going over, and you just go over today, right? just nods on you, and you keep going. And then to, like, see it, you know, laid out, I think, you know, it was quite shocking you know, for, for a lot of people. Whether they bought the case for reparations or not, but to see the actual policy, you know, I think is, is just pretty undeniable.
6: I explain the white reaction a little bit more. You mean, thank you, I now understand how the world looks through your eyes, or thank you, I now understand why...
2: I think it's Some now I know understand know my it. country a little better. Uh-huh. It's mostly um, stunned, like it's a kind of stunned. Oh my God, this really happened. Thing. Uh, but is
6: it also that now I understand why this set of issues will not go away?
2: Like maybe I'm not sure. You know. Actually, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe I, the thing that sticks with me is just the short, the the sheer. Like folks are astounded. Like they just they just astounded. And I think a lot of that is because you know we think about. Because, you know, okay, so, I, you know, yes, I, I knew slavery was brutal. Okay, fine, I, I knew that. And, yes, I knew Jim Crow was brutal. Yes, yes, I knew that. But I didn't know that rolled into that was the denial of where people could buy their homes. And, you know, a kind of intentional denial of people's ability to build wealth. And then having done that, setting them out in such a way so that people could take from the wealth that they, they had built. Um, I just think, you know, a lot of people just didn't know. A lot of people just didn't know. I mean, again, like I had the intuitive sense. I had some sense of red line, But when you see people, you know, actually say things, it's just, it's tough. I mean, the case that you know, with the contract biasly. When you had, when you see the the, the, the foreman of the jury walk out, you know, after the, you know the, the case you know goes against the contract biasly and say, you know, explicitly say to a newspaper, you know, we hope that this will help, you know, write all the nonsense that you know began with Brown versus the Board. It's like Jesus. <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do with that? That don't require reading no tea leaves right there, you know. <laughs> And to have you know, just be one, it's, it's, I mean, it is. It's a little astounding. And so I think, you know, for a lot of folks, that, that, that was tough.
6: I'm going to open it up to you guys in just a minute. I have a couple, couple more questions. I wonder what you think. You had occasion to sit down a couple of times with the president,
10: mm-hmm.
6: and um, I wonder what you, I mean, and this is terribly unfair. It's hypothetical <laughs> on so many levels and so forth and so on. What do you think he makes of this argument? <laughs>
2: Wow,
10: <laughs>
2: I, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, and I, I legitimately don't know. I haven't, you know, it, none of those occasions came. um have come after <laughs> that piece came out. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, been invited back after that, uh, but I don't think that's why. But half is okay. I don't think that's why. Um, listen, I, I think the um, president is. Um, like really really intelligent like this is just really really intelligent and i think uh, you know it's tough to deny the math there you know i think it's like really really hard to, to fix your mind to say no nothing is owed i think that's extremely extremely difficult now you can you know maybe say well here's why i can't pay although i think that's difficult too um but i, I like to think you know he would at least acknowledge the debt you know having said that you know he's in a very difficult position I think because it's what you know it's your private self right but you you weren't elected to be your private self you know you were elected to represent the United States of America. I was watching you know the president after uh, it was one of these press conferences after Ferguson and, and you know people like me you know we sit there and we parse you know every public statement that he makes and where he got it right and where we felt he got it wrong, but it's like after Ferguson. To ask, you know, Barack Obama, he's in his, I guess, what, sixth year at that point, you know, the president, to analyze it. I mean, what do you want the president of the United States to say, man? Do you want me to say to you that, listen, the folks who live there are the result of policies that this country passed? And the reason why that boy was left laying on the concrete for four hours is a direct reflection about how this country feels about black people and how it's treated black people for the entirety of their residency here in the United States. Why are you surprised? the president say that? can't say that I mean your president can't say that I mean just I mean he can't and you know I felt like and you know I don't want to mind read here but I mean um, it must be fatiguing you know to have to you know prod the country forward I don't you know at the same time understanding certain things that you must understand privately you know and not really really being able to go there so I you know watching, I just felt like, like it was just this sort of fatigue like okay you know Oh, so what do you want me to say here, man? I mean, what do you really, you know, what do you actually want me to say about this? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll find out, you know.
6: I mean, he, he has made the argument that there's a, a very different strain in the discourse around race in America that, um, that you've written about a lot. Right. Let's go back to Booker T. Washington right, and even right. before that of self reliance.
10: Right, right.
6: And um, that this isn't about don't expect this to get given to you, don't expect right. the debt to be paid. Right. Pull yourself up on the by your bootstraps You right. quote Mayor Michael Michael Nutter in the piece right. saying, Pull up your pants <laughs> and buy a belt. Yeah. Um, is do you, do you do you sense a change in the in in the rhetoric now or the First of all, what's wrong with that approach?
2: Um, well, so I, I think I get two ways of looking at, you know, that, that you know, do for self approach. There are people who have no interest, frankly, you know, in, in, in the African-American struggle and in the in African-American people, period, you know, who are just looking to, you know, not have to take a hard look at history. And so they, they say things like that, and they say, what well, is the past? It doesn't matter. So that, that's one group. I think within the African-American community, and, you know, I'm (laughs) kin to some of these people, um, there's a very, very different strain, which is yes, yes, we we do recognize that. That's definitely true. Yes, something really is old. Yes, you did get ripped off. But it's a much more, um, I don't want to say cynical, let's say pragmatic way of looking at it. It says, what makes you think these people are going to do anything for you? Like, you know, in your right mind, what, what makes you think, you know, what 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 uh, uh, piece of history, what piece of evidence, are you able to furnish to say that some critical mass of white people in this country will realize that you are owed something and in good faith make an effort to to, to pay it back? You know, if I may be so, wise, I mean, Mr. Rush, yesterday we had this thing at. Uh, North Lawndale, and Mr. Ross has his own critique of reparations, which I'm sure he would, you know, he would give. And one of the things he said yesterday he said, "Listen, if you get reparations, you better make sure you have a different court system. You better make sure you have a different educational system. You better make sure you got a different media. You basically better make sure you got a different society." Um, th- these are not people who are in denial about the fact of racism, and are not, you know, in denial uh, about, you know, the fact of an actual debt. The problem is. You know, so I thought, like, I have, like, a, a great degree of respect, you know, for that. I think that's what, like, what my dad was saying. My dad was saying, no, but it's what my dad, because we, you know, had, we, me and my father have had this debate for years now. Um, the problem I have with that, though, is um, if you accept the humanity of black people, if you accept that black people, you know, will, will fall down, that black people, you know, uh, because they're human, because there are 40 million of us, that, you know, to expect a, a group of 40 million people to be twice as good, as an actual pragmatic strategy, is to effectively expect them to be superhuman. We don't expect, you know, white people to be superhuman. Um, And if you accept that that black people are human, you have to accept that they probably can't be superhuman, that they can't be superhuman. That is the definition of being human. The mediocrity is part of the, you know, being human is not some, you know, beautiful, you know, experience, you know, written in pastels and flowers. You know, part of that is your mediocrity. (laughs) I mean, that, that's part of being human, you, you know, your ordinariness. And if you, you know, bring that analysis to black people that, you know, sometimes we are just as lazy as the next person. You know, sometimes, you know, we fall down just like the next person, and there's nothing exceptional in our laziness. There's nothing, nothing exceptional in our falling-downness. Um, the strategy for twice is good ultimately can't work. You know, and it can't work because black people are because of the humanity. You know, it, 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 you know um, I think that's great advice if you're talking to your, your, your child, I think that's great advice you're talking to your children. I think it's great advice if you were talking to a group of young people you know, about how they need to individually exceed, because I think you, know, you can have a conversation about how each of us at the end of the day is ultimately responsible for the flourishing of our own bodies, for the protection of our own bodies. We have to do all we can you know, to protect our own bodies. And even you know, if the odds seem you know, completely against us, you, know, you don't really have the luxury of quitting. I think that's one conversation that can be had. When you get to a policy level... Um, and I would, you know, make this critique, not only when you get to a policy level. When you are the head of state, you are the titular representative of America and American heritage and everything that, you know, America has thus ever done to black people, um, I think you forego the right to stand up and tell people, um, listen, ultimately, this is when you pull your pants up, because you're the representative of... Of why they got to pull up their pants in the first place. You are a representative of the reason why you know these folks have to be twice as good in the first place. You know the president you know says, um, I think if he would even say, well you know, well you know I'm speaking as an African American, you know who's you know been through this experience. That's the place I'm speaking from. I'm not you know necessarily speaking as you know head of state. But see the problem with that is when asked for policy, specifically directed to Black people, the answer is I am you know, and the answer has been I am president. Of the entire United States. Well, well, I agree with that. I agree with that. And thus, you must be critiqued as the president of the entire United States. And part of that is legacy, part of that is heritage, part of that is the practices. You know, uh, when the president of the United States goes every Memorial Day you know, and talks about you know, the sacrifices you know, of, of the American you know, military, he's invoking the heritage of this country. When the president of the United States you know, talks about Abraham Lincoln, when he goes to Springfield, as he did to, to uh, you know, inaugurate his campaign, he's invoking heritage this is heritage too man this is why heritage ain't just the thing that that flatters you and so i think you know like like uh those of us you know who you know um you know admire you know the president who respect the president who think you know the president is uh you know just you know carrying quite a bit still have a responsibility to critique that um and so like as much as i you know admire that philosophy you know and as much as um i very much grew up on that philosophy i'm a product of that philosophy as a policy because black people are human, because black people are part of the country. Um, I just, I, you know, I, I don't know how that works as, as, as a national policy, you know, of, of self-liberation. You know, we, um, we're part of this. We're part of this. You know, uh, we, we, we were ripped off. That, that, you know, is the immediate reason for why, you know, we're in this condition. And as hard as the answer, you know, might be to, you know, affect. And, you know, given the fact that the answer might not and probably won't be affected in our lifetime, in our kids' lifetime, maybe not even in our grandkids' lifetime, um, that does not, you know, uh, forego us, you know, give us the right to, to, to look away. I mean, one of the things, I'm sorry, I get going on this a little bit, but one of the things, and I'll cut it off after this, I'm sorry for this long, lengthy answer, but one of the things I think about is if we look at the black community today, right, and again, you know, it's starting from the premise of, of humanism, and you say, well, part of the problem is we have not taken you know we have not done all that we can do and you know, we haven't you know been you know twice we you know we we've fallen down on the job we've done X Y and Z well if you accept that we you know we are as human as other previous generations then well man you got to look back to the 1960s and the civil rights movement when they were executing black people uh, in Mississippi in Alabama did that generation not do as much as it was supposed to do is that a critique that we would make of them? when we look at the era of a political leadership and black people during the red summers during the era of lynching at the turn of the century, and say, you know what, those people were, were too lazy. They could have done more. When we look at enslaved Black people in the 1830s and the 1840s, and say, why didn't you fight harder? You know, why didn't you rebel? Why didn't you? If you had rebelled, we wouldn't have ended up ended up in there. Had you been superhuman, had you been twice as good, you could have overthrown slavery on your own through your sheer will. We would never do that. That'd be totally, totally disrespectful. And so my argument is that you know we should show the same respect that we show for ancestors, for the community that came before us, for our young people. But they deserve that, that exact, you know, the same respect. And so I, I just think, um, I think that idea has to be interrogated and has to be critiqued, even being sympathetic the way it comes from.
6: All right, let's open it up um, to questions from the audience. I'd, I'd like, actually like to reinforce Steve's um, admonition at the outset that please ask your question in the form of a question and, um, and, and a short question to preserve as much time as we can for others to ask questions.
5: Hi, thank you. This question is coming from the D.C. Chicago Alumni Club Watch Party. In the months since writing your piece, is there anything you would change or update? Have you seen any progress in reparations as a result of your piece? Thank you.
2: I mean, I haven't seen any progress. Um, <laughs> but but that, that also, like, I also wouldn't, I, like, it's not my... Don't say it's outside of the realm of a writer to do that, you know, like I you know My job is then to move on the next and to not you know, like sit here too long I you know, I can't you know, I wrote the piece um, I hope there there people who have been fighting for reparations for a very very long time I hope the piece gives them some ammo, you know, that have activists who've been dealing with this for a very very long time I hope it gives them some ammo, you know, to go out and you know, uh, uh, do what needs to be done um, But as a writer, you know, I you know, I, 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 you know, I, I sort of have to have to keep going, you know, and, and you know other lines you know, there's not much about the piece I would change. The hope is that you know, in you know, the reporting that I do going forward, it, you know, it enhances. You know, it asks other questions that are that are related, you know, to to that piece. Next
5: question. Hi, um, I have a question from Chloe, who's watching from our overflow room. You talk about reparations being the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequences. What steps do you imagine co- our country taking to achieve this? What can we do to move in
2: this direction? Well, uh, I don't, you know, I think that the first big thing is the in the piece and people, <laughs> they hate the small, most basic answers. Um, you can urge whatever congressional district you, can, you live in. Um, uh, John Conyers introduces H.R. 40, uh, which is a bill to study uh, reparations and, oh, I'm sorry, to study the effects of enslavement and its subsequent legacy on African-Americans and assess this question of whether black people deserve reparations. You can urge your congressman to support H.R. 40. Uh, And this is, you know, um, not a small thing. This is not a small thing at all. Um, An accounting has to be made. A study has to be made. This is exactly the way that this struggle for Japanese-American reparations went for internment. There was a study. (laughs) There was an assessment made of the damage. Uh, And then, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan, the white man, the symbolic white man, (laughs) signed a bill. You know, it gave, you know, uh, re- reparations to, to, uh, Jap- to Japanese Americans who were interned. I think the exact same political process needs to happen to other, you know, for other people. There are people, you know, also, you know, who are in the activist community, uh, for example, with the group in Cobra, you know, who uh, um, have been pushing a more internationalist, you know, approach. Um, and that, that really is, you know, their vein. I, you know, I think you can look, you know, look up some of the activists, for example, in Cobra who have been pursuing this for years and look at what strategies they're, they're pursuing. You know what I mean? You can support that. Um, so I think there are a range of things. The basic recommendation I get you know, is to immediately get beyond H.R. 40. Um, but I wouldn't be contained to that. I wouldn't be restrained with that.
5: Thank you. Uh, I'd like to know, ideally, what reparations would look like to you uh, if you had complete control over it, uh, whether it's cash or policy, education reform, and then what the impact of that would be 10, 20, 50 years down the road. Well, if I had complete control over it, it wouldn't really be
2: reparations. That's part of the problem. I mean, I, um, I, I think people imagine reparations happening in the current political system as it is today. So, you know, one of the discussions we give, you know, we'll say, you know, there was a check cut right now to, you know, black people for, I don't know, $50,000 a piece, whatever you're going to say. You know, what, what would that effect, you know, be right now? But see, you, you have to envision <laughs> you have to understand what, how America thinks about racism in black people right now, right? And the hit idea is pretty much, your, you, know, we, you know, that was in the past, that was a long time ago, right? Um, a world in which H.R. 40 gets to the House floor, a world in which, you know, there's a, you know, a partnership for H.R. 40, you know, in the Senate, you know, uh, and a world where, you know, a president actually gets behind that and you have actual hearings, that is a very, very different America. It's completely, completely different America. It's an America with a totally different perspective on its history. It's a very, you know, America with a very, you know, totally different, you know, uh, perspective on Black people. Um, and, and in that world, what would reparations be? You know, that. that so I, I, you know, I see it as a, as, a, as a, you know, and you know, folks may differ with me on this, but I see it as, a, as an essentially democratic process. Because if that doesn't happen, and you just cut a check, we've learned nothing. We've I mean, absolutely, we've learned nothing at all. You know, not, nothing will, will, will actually, you know, necessarily change. But in a world where reparations does happen, I think, you know, what you have is a broad commitment to fix what happened in the past. You know, so that may, you know, take the form of, you know, deliberately, you know, giving somebody a check. You know, I think about Mr. Clyde Ross, and I think, you know, <laughs> give Mr. Clyde Ross a check right now.
4: Right? Like, you could just
2: do that. That's something that, that, that should be done. And just, to, you know, to make this, like, knowable, to put this in, you know, a, a, a knowable frame. Look, we have the maps for, you know, where redlining took place. We have census reports. We know who lived where. You know, we could set up a process right now, you know, for folks who were, you know, who were, you know sent into you know, uh, 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 situations with loans, you know, that were predatory because of redlining. We can, you know, set up a situation right now for folks who can say, you know, listen, I tried to access certain things through the GI bill and I was denied. Um, now that's not a, you know, that's not you know a, a radical option, but that's like a narrow cast thing that's doable. Right now, you know, in terms of, you know, folks that, you know, have been ripped off that we know about. I'm not arguing that it should be limited to that. But, you know, we, we do have those starting points. But I think, you know, a, a time when you get to that level, that's just, it's a totally, totally different America. And it's not just a matter of sending out checks. If you study, you know, like the reparations that Germany gave, you know, they, they, you know in the peace we talk about them giving reparations to Israel. But that wasn't the end of it. That was the start of it. You know, the process continues even up till today. Now, we're talking about, I mean, going back to 1619. You know, how how long would that take? How long would it take to make that right? But, you know, a country that gets into, you know, the, the, the mode of reparation, I think, is, is you know, would be would be committed to that law of process. This is a different America. It's a very, very different America where that happens.
5: Hi. So I have two questions that are
3: actually associated. One is, are you thinking about writing a book? And two is, what's the next step in... You know, after you experience the shocked white person who's like, "I had no idea," so then there has to be a next step that involves education of somehow. And how do you imagine that continuing?
2: Yeah, I'm working on edits for a book right now. I'm sorry, so I should. The mask God willing, the manuscript will be done by the end of the year. Um, it's kind of rooted in some of the stuff, but it's not. It's not like the case for reparations blown out in the book. It's, it's something a little different. Um, I, I don't know what happens after that. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know where a shocked white person goes after, you know, realizing that this was something that happened. I mean, I, that really is for shocked white person to decide, you know. I mean, are, are you going to, you know, just be shocked? And, you know, and I, I, I'm not, you know, like there's a kind of shock where, well, I didn't know that happened. And then you just continue on with your death, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> but you like to think that people will keep reading. You know, you like to think that people will, you know, to, to, to pursue, you know, their education and, and will not, you know, stop with, with, with you know, with, with the Atlantic and will go on. As a right, that's beyond my control. You know, I you know I try to play my position. I I do my part. You know, and I hope that folks continue. You know, self educate. You know, I always you know try to be very clear about the resources I use to educate myself. You know, and and I hope that people follow up.
5: Hi. um, So there's an advocacy group in Chicago called the Anti Eviction Campaign that works to repossess. The anti what? The anti eviction campaign that works to repossess, repossess abandoned houses by occupying them. Um, what do you think about this, and do you think this could be incorporated into reparations in any way?
2: Well, this is the first time I'm hearing about it, so I'm not really qualified to give an informed opinion, regrettably. Um, yeah, I try to keep my feet underneath me, man, when I throw a punch. So I, you know, I don't want to you know, get out there. And that doesn't mean that you know what they're doing is you know, unjust or just or anything like that. It's just that I just don't know. I just don't know.
10: Um,
11: so I currently read essays for college seniors at Martin Luther King High School, and it's 92% black, but it's a very high-achieving uh, high school, and so all the seniors are going to colleges with...
2: And it's a very high-achieving... Yeah. But...
11: <laughs> um, uh, and a lot of the students are going to very uh, prestigious universities with low black populations, and. What, do you have a word for the class of 2014 yeah. as to how to take black culture, pop mm-hmm. culture to the university campus?
2: Yeah, I have, I have great advice for them, and the advice is apply to Howard University. <laughs> 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 that, that's my advice. And, and um, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not you know, being flip here. Here's what I'll say. Uh, my advice is to apply to Howard University and then go to those elite schools for grad school. Um, that, that's my advice. And, and here's, here's why I say that. Um, I, I, it's impossible for me so imagine writing the case for reparations with, without having gone to a historically black school, um, and Howard in particular. But I, you know, I would, I would spread that out to HBCUs youth in general. The, the, the thing that HBCUs offer, and this happens because I, you know, I'll come to talk to a, at a school like this. So I, you know, I'll be up at, at Cornell where I was, uh, you know, a few months ago, and um, a young lady said to me, she said, um, "How how am I supposed to deal with you know the fact that you know people say I'm only here because of affirmative action?" You know, and I, and I answered the question, but, you know, the other thing I said is, listen, like, that is never, by the time that was my experience, I had gotten to the Atlantic. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was thoroughly formed. Um, I, I never had that as a question in my head at all, you know, uh, that, you know, I had gotten here because out of some, you know, sort of thing that somebody had done. Um, not that you should feel that way to begin with, but what I'm saying is I was never, that's a tough thing to face at 18. That's a hard thing for somebody to put on you at 18 when you're still trying, trying to find yourself. Um, Historically, black schools give African-American students the chance to sit back and assess themselves and, and, and confront their tradition in a um, semi-private space. It's not totally private space, but in a, in a semi-private space. And that just allows for a range of debate and dialogue that you know, is just beyond you know, anything that, that you know, I experienced after I left. It's one thing... Um, to have to confront your history, you know, say here you know, in, in, in mixed company, which is great. Um, but sometimes we get defensive. You know, we feel the need to defend ourselves against other people. Or the professor, you know, who may not you know, be black says something, and you feel this need to defend yourself. And at Howard, that was like totally off the table. You know, it freed people up to say, you know, the things that, you know, you really, really need to say, you know, to talk, to talk. Seriously, yeah, one of the things I think about, and I'll just tell this story really quickly. You know, I, those of us who, who, who you know, came um, to Howard, you know, were heavily influenced by Malcolm X, heavily influenced by Black nationalism. You know, I felt this, you know, real, real need um, to, you know, make ourselves human. And the way to make ourselves human was to prove that we had, you know, built things as advanced and as beautiful and as great as anything that white people had built. Um, and that sent us on a chase for heroes. And one of the, you know, people that I, I think about is this woman uh, who's, you know, a, a you know, brilliant military strategist, Queen Nzinga, right, what is, you know, now, now the Congo today. And there's a, you know, a famous story that I remember reading about. And she's going in to negotiate with the Dutch who are trying to, you know, take from her. And they, they want to disrespect her. So what they do is they don't give her a chair, right? And she immediately orders one of her servants to, you know, sit down and basically get on all fours. And she uses this woman um, as, as a stool. And this story is told, and, and it's true to show, you know, like like the craftiness of Nzinga about how she wouldn't be disrespected. And I read about that, you know, and it you know made me like you know feel really proud and everything. You go out there and say, yeah, you know, we got brilliant people too. And you go someplace like Howard, right? And that's cool, you know. But like the need to assess to uh, assert your self-esteem is not the same. You don't really need it because everybody around you is black. It's clear, you know, brilliance of black people is right there. There's no you know real argument about that. And then man, we got to breaking that story down. We got to thinking about like what enslavement actually was, and how it was actually the loss of your body, and how like if you you know, really you know, get on a human level, and you want to understand your condition as the descendants of slaves, you have much more in common with the woman who was used as a chair than you do with Queen and Zynga. and that was like a like a like a profound moment for me, you know it was like a deep you know sort of sort of realization that I could not have made, you know w- within you know frankly a, a white space. Um, the, the, the opportunity to interrogate that and to interrogate yourself and to subject yourself to the harshest possible rigor. You know, and then at the end of it, you know, come out feeling like, like, like you're all right. You know, I saw Bellow had written this thing at the time. It just greatly, greatly disturbed me. He wrote, um, you know, assessing, you know, black said, Who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus? I went on this, time, I got to find a Tolstoy of the Zulus. Who is the Tolstoy? There must be a Tolstoy of the Zulus, right? And, you know, just doing you know, this reading, at I came across this brilliant Ralph Wiley essay, and Ralph Wiley replies and says, I mean, this is like the most liberating thing I've ever read. This says, story is the Tolstoy of the Zulus. I thought, damn. Wow. Oh, like the whole, you know, gambit was wrong. Like you can't even accept the premise. That, you know, sort of realized, and I sort of interrogates for me, you know, for what I mean was only possible. You know, in a black space. So I think, regrettably, you know, you know, this is no disrespect to you know, elite institutions. Um, I think, though, for, for black people, uh, it's essential at that young age to, to have that room to interrogate yourself, you know, to look at yourself. And then after that, you can go out and see the world. You know, the world's going to be majority white anyway. you got plenty of time. you got plenty of time to go to Yale, Harvard, Princeton. you got, you got plenty of time for that. You know, but at that, that crucial point, I'm, I'm a big believer in HBCUs. I'm going through this with my son right now.
10: yeah.
11: Um, you touched on this in your piece and in your talk right now, that essentially when people hear reparations, the immediate snap judgment is a check being mailed out to white people, essentially. Mm-hmm. And when you actually read your piece, it's clear that what you're asking for, when you, when you make your case for reparations, for you reparations, is a reckoning. It's much broader than that check. And yet... Your oh, no, piece a check is part of it. I'll tell you part <laughs> of it. Right. But yet your piece is named the case for reparations mm-hmm. very starkly. Was there ever any hesitation or ambivalence before the piece was published about putting that title on the front of it, and that it might turn away people who would otherwise be more willing to even
6: engage with the argument?
2: I don't think so. No, right? We we
6: experimented with a couple of other possible headlines. Um, I'm having trouble remembering what they were. But basically, from the beginning, this was what we called the piece. And that was the only reason we hesitated at the last minute, because we just thought this had been our... Headline right. guess, the, the way we thought about the story through the editing process, and would it would it translate to the outside world? And uh, we realized it would, yeah. so we went with it.
2: Yeah, no, no, no it's very little. I always, I, I think I told James before. I always joke that um, people always, you know, come up to me. I was telling James, and they say, "How would you get that in the Atlantic?" <laughs> <laughs> like black people, they always come up to me, and I, I always joke. That I, I want to say. Well, you know, I had to tell them white folks we had to do X, Y, and Z, and they wasn't hearing me. And then we did this and that. <laughs> but that's so not what happened. It's just not, you know, that's just that's the, the, not the, the what truth happened. The
6: is I was on vacation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, the, the real truth is, you know, I, I sent a bitch to, you know, uh, Scott Stossel. And he read the pitch and said, "Okay." And I'm assuming he took it to you. And, and folks were like, "Okay, so how are we going to do this?" There was there was um, there was no internal you know no resistance to you know the presentation to how we were going to do it, uh, to, to the investment to 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 the resources. And I think um, you know, as happy as I am about that, you know, and and, and the Atlantic you know being willing to go that, I actually think it's illustrative. And I was talking to James about this earlier. You know, one of the problems why we don't see more arguments like this is. You know, by the time I had, you know, pitched that, I had been, you know, effectively writing for the Atlantic for about four or five years. So, you know, we had a relationship. Um, very few African-American writers have those kind of relationships with, you know, magazines at the Atlantic's level. Um, that, that's, that's just the truth of it. And I think that's a, you know, more than, more than people not being open, you know, to, to the ideas, it's just the, the relationship ain't there, man. You know, and there are reasons why the relationships aren't there. You know, it's a very, if you think about, you know, how one breaks into the field of magazines, it's a very, very difficult, you know, process. It's very, very difficult for people who, you know, might be, you know, in the first generation of folks that are going to college, for instance. You know, tell somebody you want to work for a magazine. There was, you know, happily, you know, the Atlantic internship is paid. You know, but that, you know, often is not the case for magazines. It certainly was not the case when I was coming up, you know. So you're trying to break in by, you know, either taking a really, really low-paying job or, you know, no money at all, you know, and trying to live in a city like New York or D.C., difficult. Very, 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 very difficult. And so um, I think, you know, it's like good and bad news. I mean, the good news is, you know, folks really, you know, at least at the, I'll speak for the Atlantic. (laughs) I'll speak for the Atlantic. The Atlantic, you know, as always, I've I've never had a feeling like, you know, hey, I'm saying something crazy here and you guys aren't going to be over to. I've never had that. Um, At the same time. Um, you, you do look around the landscape and see that there's so few people to actually get you know to that point to have that relationship. And that, that's um, that's the problematic aspect of it. Um, one of the things that you brought up was the bootstrap mentality that seems to pervade everything. Uh, I'm one of those cynical old black men that you brought up in your your talk. Uh, there was a study that Gallup did in the 50s that showed that 80% of white folks felt that Black people had it just as good as white folks, Mm -hmm. and we hear the same thing now. So when we talk about this political landscape that we need to change in order for reparations to even be a realistic conversation, how do we get white folks to the point to actually understand that we as black people really do know what we're talking about when we tell them something is wrong? Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, And and I, I, I... I love a cynical old, old black people because what they do is, man, they, they bring the real. I mean, that, that's a real, that's a serious, that's an actual question that has to be confronted. And, you know, I'm of, I'm as you, you might observe, I have some conflict in my head about it myself. Um, so I, I, I think the first thing is, um, if you're going to work within the political process, if you're going to make a decision, you know, that you're not going to go out and get guns and try to, you know, overthrow something. If you're going to work within the political process. There has to be you know, a, a political solution, and I don't know how you get around the fact that it's massive, massive debt. I just, it's huge. I mean, you can see it represented in the wealth gap, but I suspect that that doesn't even capture everything. I think it, we're at the point where for every you know, nickel of wealth an African-American family has, uh, a white family has a dollar. And that the rough approximation of the wealth gap, that doesn't even completely cover it. So, you know, we talk about in the piece, there's a level of neighborhood poverty that black people experience. So, if you are an African American family that you know uh, makes around $100,000 a year, you tend to live in a neighborhood uh, where people make about $30,000 a year. So, you you know may you know on the income level look like uh, you know a relatively you know rich black family, but you live in housing that is you know comparable to a lower middle class white family. These, these are tremendous like like hurdles that, that that have to you know be dealt with. And as much as I would like to believe in you know the bootstrap, I, I don't think It gets us there, you know, here's an even more distressing thought. I strongly suspect that much of what happens in history is outside of, you know, the the direct control of of, of human beings. And what I mean by that is the direct intention of human beings. Okay, so if you were uh, an enslaved black person in 1820, you could look all the way back through your lineage, all the way back to 1619, see nothing but enslaved black people. Beyond that, if you you had economic knowledge of what was going on, you could see the rising value of black people. You could look forward and see that your kids were going to be enslaved too. There was every reason to believe that for the rest of your life and for the rest of your children's life and for the rest of your grandchildren and great-grandchildren's lives, you would be enslaved. I mean, you take it from that perspective. That, 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 that That would have been the pragmatic thing to think at that point. And yet people stood up and said this was wrong. So you get to a point where you're talking about like 1855, 1858, around that period. You get somebody like, you know, say Frederick Douglass just to pick one person. And he's saying, the just policy, the thing this country must immediately do is it must liberate four million black people who are living in South. You know, no questions asked. And you ain't shipping them off to Africa. You know, let them right there. It's their land. They worked it. They deserve it just as much as anybody else. And people think Frederick Douglass is out of his mind. How's that going to happen? Have you looked at the worth of what black people... You know, represent to this country uh, the largest concentration of multimillionaires in this country are living in the Mississippi River Valley. Not in New York, not in Chicago, not in Boston. Mississippi River Valley, man. The you know, largest export to this country in 1860, the time of the Civil War, is cotton. Sixty percent of our exports is cotton. Maybe is that intrinsic. Who would have counted on white slaveholders overplaying their hand? That's what they did. I mean, that's what they did. They just took it too far. They just, you know, kind of lost their mind. And ended up proving Frederick Douglass right. So that seven years later, you know, seven years before, people were saying, you know, Frederick, you crazy. And seven years later, he, he looks like a prophet. Because of the events of history. 1860, Douglass is telling people, listen, the immediate and just thing is to, you know, give black people guns and let them fight for their freedom. And what people are telling, Douglass, you are crazy. You know, you know, white people who are in charge of things, you know, Abraham Lincoln on the same, man, we don't know what these black people are going to do with these guns. They might shoot themselves. They might shoot us. We have no idea what's going to happen. Emancipation Proclamation comes out, and people ignore it. They focus on you know, like the, the idea of freeing people. But the real deal is that the Emancipation Proclamation is a military order, and it immediately orders guns to be given to black people so that they can fight on their own behalf. And So by the time you get to Petersburg, you know, in 1865, you're talking about, you know, something like 1 in 10, you know, soldiers at Petersburg, The number might even be higher, you know, are African-American. They're fighting for something that no one would have predicted at the onset of the war. What what happened? What happened? Well, they thought they were going to be able to wrap the war up quick. Who would have counted on General McClellan being so bad? Who would have counted on that? You know, who would have counted on, you know, the Southern generalship being so good, and these folks Fighting, you know, for dear life to the end. So events that were outside of our control, this goes down to the, to the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, one of the things that, you know, we appreciate the bravery of Dr. Martin Luther King. We appreciate the bravery of, of the Freedom Riders and all of those folks. But what people don't talk about is America had a problem at that point. And the problem was people were using Jim Crow as a weapon in the Cold War we had just had, you know, this fight, you know, in uh, World War II with Nazism to see, you know, the logical ends of what racism was, the extermination, you know, of of, of an entire group of people. America had a serious, serious problem. You know, how could it preach about, you know, liberty, you know, in Russia, you know, and still have, you know, what was going on down 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 in the South. Now listen, the, the activists took, took great advantage of that. You know what I mean? They did. But the situation itself was outside of their control. I, I say at this stage. I think the job, you know, of folks in our situation is to say the right thing and to wait for our opportunity. The opportunity is out of control. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's going to happen? You know, but it just like, you know, I, I, you know, folks in 1820, when it looked crazy to say, you know, the, 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 the real just thing is to emancipate all of us, um, did not stop trying to say the right thing. I don't think that's a reason to not say the right thing right now.
6: Oh, I'm afraid only one more question. It's- you have the microphone, sir.
11: <laughs> and I'm not letting it go.
6: <laughs>
11: keep this going for as long as I want. No. Okay. <laughs> um, so this this question's gonna change. I guess just the it's, it's different from the other questions in that I want to pose a, a, a little challenge. Um, I appreciate the article. And I think it's it's great, and that obviously means I'm gonna say but. But one thing that I had, I had trouble with is just the, the place that Native Americans don't occupy in it. And I know that <clears throat> you say academics, I'm not necessarily an academic, but you say there's a tendency to overcomplicate things, And I think I don't want to do that, but I think it's an important thing to think about when we're talking about land, right? When we're talking about black people taking up land in this country, and we trace the story back to 1619, what if we went back to 1492 and thought about that in terms of reparations? I mean, what should that do to the argument as far as making a case for this for black people when, you know, Native Americans have not just undergone genocide historically, but one of the primary ways that they were argued they had disappeared, Disappearance theory is a subset of Native American studies, one of the primary arguments was that they had diluted their blood by intermixing with black people specifically. So when you look at these kinds of things and you wrote these into the history of not just Native American people but black people, there's a confluence, there's, there's a convergence of stories that I think necessitates that we not just reside in the black-white binary as far as how we look at reparations, but look at how we understand this on a larger, yeah. more long-term scale. Sorry, I don't mean to go long. My question is simply, how do you rope right. that longer history into this
2: case? Right. So, um, you know, this is the case for reparations. I hope it's not the last article on reparations. You know, it shouldn't be the last word. Um, I, you know, I think in, in progressive circles, you know, there's you know always this search, and it's a good search, you know, for coalitions to see how, you know, we, we relate to other people, how things are inter- interconnected. And you just, you know, you know uh, explain the history of how we could see that. Having said that, you know, I, I believe that the black experience is a specific, is a particular thing. And I believe that the black people have a right let me change that. It's not even so much black people have a right. I think the history of itself is worthy of examination in and of itself by itself. Um, and I don't think that impact, I don't think that, that means that there's not a case for reparations for, na- for Native Americans. But I have the right. I keep saying right. I have a right to study black people. I have a right to to, to think about that in and of itself. You know, just like um, you know, one could make the same critique of an argument, you know, for example, uh, reparations uh, that were given to Israel after the Holocaust. Well, Jews weren't the only people that were killed in the Holocaust, you know? Um, but folks have a right to talk about that. And then there should be you know, another article you know, about the Roma killed in the Holocaust. And there should be another article about, you know, uh, homosexuals who were killed in the Holocaust. Just like there should be another article about reparations for Native Americans. Um, this should, you know, I think one of the things that, that we mistake is, um, Because sometimes there's not a lot of bandwidth for a certain story, Uh, we try to put everything on one story. You know what I mean? This is one story, man. You know, this is just one story. And I I really, I did my best to research the hell out of it. Um, Most of it is not actually rooted, you know, in that period. For the most part, you know, it's talking about housing. You know, and I, I think, like, you know, we have the right to reside in that space, to talk about our experience as an independent, separate field worthy of study. And somebody else should write, frankly, somebody else. Somebody else better informed, somebody else who's, you know, thought about this question all of their all of their life should write the case for Native American reparations. I can't wait to read it. You know? And I'm not, I'm not being